0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is Week 36, the Book of Romans, Chapter 16, and the end of our study of the Book of Romans. The Church Father. Chrysostom of the early 5th century said this about Romans chapter 16. He said, I think there are many, even some apparently good, commentators who hurry over this part of the epistle because they think it is superfluous, it's of little importance. They probably think much the same about the genealogies in the Gospels because it is a catalog of names They think they can get nothing good out of it. People who mine gold are careful even about the smallest fragments, but these commentators ignore even huge bars of gold. Half or more of Romans chapter 16 seems to be about as useful as reading a table of contents in a book, because indeed it is a list of names to close Paul's letter to the Romans, but there's more in this chapter than only that. For one thing, we get a glimpse of the important role that women played in the Messianic movement in Paul's day. Even more, we must understand that the majority of these women are Jewish women serving in Jewish synagogues because so-called Christianity was still mostly a sect of Judaism, and it would remain so until after Paul was martyred. It's fascinating that in an age when male dominance was universal, it was unquestioned, that women played such a prominent role in this movement that Yeshua started. However, no doubt this was the case mostly in the diaspora, not so much in the Holy Land, where tradition and the ancient ways were carefully guarded by the zealots. Let's read Romans chapter 16 together. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1420. 1420. I am introducing introducing to you our sister Phoebe, Shmash of the congregation at Kenshreya, so that you may welcome her in the Lord, as God's people should, and give her whatever assistance she may need from you, for she has been a big help to many people, including myself. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Achilla, my fellow workers for the Messiah Yeshua. They risked their necks to save my life, not only I thank them, but also all the Messianic communities among the Gentiles, and give my greetings to the congregation that meets in their house. Give my greetings to my dear friend Ep- Epinaeus, who is the first person in the province of Asia to put his trust in the Messiah. Give my greetings to Miriam, who has worked very hard for you. Greetings to Andronicus and Junia, relatives of mine who were in prison with me. They are well known among the emissaries. Also, they came to trust in the Messiah before I did. Greetings to Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greetings to Urbanus, our fellow worker for the Messiah. And to my dear friend, Stachys. Greetings to Apellus, whose trust in the Messiah has been tested and proved. Greet those in the household of Aristobulus. Greet my friend I'd rather greet my relative Herodian. Greet Trafana and Trifosa, women who are working hard for the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has done a lot of hard work for the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen by the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas. Hermas and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all of God's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the Messiah's congregations send their greetings to you. Now I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put snares alongside the teaching in which you have been trained. Keep away from them. For men like these are not serving our Lord the Messiah, but their own belly. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the innocent. For everyone has heard about your obedience. Therefore I rejoice over you. However, I want you to be wise concerning good, but innocent concerning evil. And God, the source of shalom, will soon crush the adversary under your feet. The grace of our Lord Yeshua be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends greetings to you. So does Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, the one writing down this letter, greet you in the Lord. My host, Gaius, in whose home the whole congregation meets, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and brother uh, Quartus greet you. Now to God who could strengthen you according to my good news in harmony with the revelation of the secret truth, which is the proclamation of Yeshua the Messiah, kept hidden in silence for ages and ages, but manifested now through prophetic writings, in keeping with the command of God the Eternal, and communicated to all the Gentiles to promote in them trust-grounded obedience to the only wise God, Through Yeshua, the Messiah, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We find Paul accomplish a number of things in this final chapter. He introduces Phoebe, a female believer to the congregation in Rome. He also asks that the members of the Roman congregation would greet one another with a holy kiss and we'll get into the meaning of that shortly. He includes greetings from others of the local congregation, possibly in Corinth, from where he's writing this letter. A strong note of caution is issued for the Roman believers to beware of false teachers in their midst. He asks the believers to remember that despite all of the difficulties within and without of their congregation, final spiritual victory is coming. And lastly, Paul prays on behalf of the Romans that Messiah Yeshua would be with them. Now clearly, Paul personally knows, or he knows of, several people in the Roman congregation and has had communication with them. Now I point this out because since the consensus among Christian commentators has been for centuries that this letter to the Romans is actually the formulation of a systematic Christian theology designed by Paul to be followed by all the churches and in no way was it aimed at the Roman believers, his acknowledged relationship with some of the Roman believers, explains how it is that he knew what was going on in Rome so that he tailored his letter, as he has all his other letters, to addressing issues that concerned that specific congregation. This letter was by no means an attempt at creating a universal Christian systematic theology. Now, Paul begins by introducing Phoebe, who no doubt is the one who is going to be carrying this letter to the Roman congregation. The complete Jewish Bible calls her a shmash, shmash, of the congregation, meaning of the, the local congregation. Now, in Judaism, this meant that she held an official office of some sort in the synagogue. She was someone who had duties and the authority to carry ta- to carry out tasks that could range f- from caring for the building to serving as president over the synagogue. Christianity has tended to call her a deacon or a deaconess, which in Christian cultural terms accurately I think depicts her position. Paul is asking the Roman congregation to accept her as more or less an agent for Paul. To receive her in the Lord means that she belongs to the body of Messiah and she should be treated in such a manner. This request is much less about making it plain that she's a believer, it's much more about her being his female representative. Now, Paul briefly states that her qualifications are that she has been a substantial help to him in his mission of evangelism, and has also helped others of the faith. Well, in verse three, Paul speaks of some familiar names to us: Priscilla and Achilla. Now we hear of this influential couple in the book of Acts, and First Corinthians, and Second Timothy. It's always been a point of focus among Bible scholars how the female's name is always mentioned first whenever this this couple is spoken of. Exactly why that is is pure pure speculation, but it is unusual. Apparently Priscilla is the more known and active of the two. Her husband Achilla was a Jew who lived in Rome until Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews, or at least most Jews, from the city in 52 AD. It seems that this married couple who were already believers then moved from Rome to Corinth. It seems that they ran into Paul. They found out that they shared the occupation of tent making as well as a faith in the Jewish Messiah. Now, whether Achilla's wife, Priscilla, was born a Jew, we don't know for certain. But it would have been most unusual for a Jew to marry a Gentile woman at that time. So without other evidence, there's no reason to think that Priscilla was anything other than a Jew. That we hear of their names so often in the New Testament, that they are presented so casually, they must have been very well known and prominent members of the believing community. It's clear that Priscilla and Aquila had recently moved back to Rome because Paul is not introducing them in this letter. Rather, he's asking that his greetings be given to them. This helps us a bit in determining the date of this letter. Since Emperor Claudius, who expelled the Jews from Rome in 52 AD, died. In 54 AD, and the expulsion degree, decree died along with him. So, this letter was written somewhere, sometime shortly after 54 AD. Paul goes on to explain that Priscilla and Aquila were so devoted to Paul that they had risked their own lives to save him from some dangerous situation. There is no record, no record of this in the Bible and anywhere else that we know of. We don't know what incident this is talking about. Now notice how Paul mentions to also give greetings to the congregation that meets in Priscilla's and Achilla's house in Rome. See, there were no such things as church buildings in this era. Depending on the situation, the congregations either met in synagogues or in people's homes. In fact, back in our study on the book of Acts, I discussed with you that it is a great misnomer and it can be quite confusing for the Bible student to say that by now, believers in Yeshua are called Christians. Briefly, the Greek term Christos was translating the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah. Christos was not a proper name, like it has virtually become in English. That is, Christians speak today of Christ almost as though that's Jesus' alternate name. All it meant in Paul's day was Messiah. So the word Christian, which is an English word, was not uttered in the New Testament, at least not in New Testament times, and it wouldn't be until much later. Rather, the term Christos would have indicated Messianics, in other words, believers in the Jewish Messiah Yeshua, or at least that was the intent of the word. Further, the Greek word that is invariably translated to church in English is also a misnomer and it creates a lot of confusion. Ecclesia is the Greek word found in the New Testament. It's a general word. It just means means a gathering or assembly. And when the New Testament refers to Ecclesia most often it is referring to a gathering of believers but the word church didn't exist. Thus there were also, no such things as churches, meaning church buildings. And when we can grasp that the terms Christians and church didn't exist until a very long time after the Bible was closed up, then we can disregard the Gentiles only flavor that has been erroneously added to the New Testament. The New Testament was just as Jewish as the Old. Now, from verses 5 through 15, we get this long list of names that Chrysostom spoke of. Now, we're not going to dwell here too long, but we will say a few words about them. First of all, recognize that all of these names were members of the Roman congregation whom Paul obviously knew or knew of. Now, whether he personally had met them or merely corresponded with them, we just don't know. Nonetheless, to mention them individually meant he had some sort of friendly relationship with each of them. The first greeting is to epinetus which is a fairly common Roman name. It seems he, he held a special place to Paul as he was among the very first successes that Paul had and he's the first name to be mentioned. It's also self-evident that this particular believer relocated from Asia to the city of Rome. However, nothing is suggested, suggested for the reason that he moved. I would suggest that because of the timing and his being the first to be greeted by Paul, he could very well have been instrumental in establishing that first believing congregation in the capital of Rome. Next is a greeting to Mary. Now, This woman could have been either Roman or Jewish because the name was used by both. So she could have been either a Jew or a Gentile, we just don't know. Apparently Mary was a person that Paul heard was a faithful servant. To her congregation and worked very diligently at it. Next are Andronicus and Junia, who Paul describes as his kinsmen. Now, although the the complete Jewish Bible calls them and and translated as relatives of Paul, that might be a stretch because the Greek word, Sugenus, more Usually, just means fellow countryman. Although relative is a legitimate alternative translation for it. So probably the intent is merely to say that Andronicus and Junia were Jews, and Paul says he was in. They were in prison with him. Now we don't know if he means literally. That they were imprisoned at the same time as he was, or if it means that they too had been imprisoned for some offense that arose from their faith, so they had that in common. We know that Paul had a few stints in jail, but those two people were never mentioned in the New Testament and any other letters. It's also fairly clear that Andronicus and Junius are a male and female respectively, but we don't really know for certain if they were a married couple. They were well known, and Paul says they were believers before he was. Ampliatus is called a friend. No more is said about him. Urbanus and Stachys are common Roman slave names it is known that many freedmen joined the Messianic movement. Apelles is asked to greet the household of Aristobulus in Paul's name. Now there's some suggestion that this Aristobulus could well be the grandson of Herod the Great, because Josephus tells us that a fellow named Aristobulus was a good friend and confidant, a confidant rather, of Emperor Claudius and lived in Rome. The next verse that adds greetings to Herodian only adds to the possibility that as unlikely as it might seem to us, some members of the Herod dynasty actually came to belief in Messiah Yeshua. Paul again identifies this person as a kinsman, so for sure he was Jewish. Two women now are acclaimed as meriting greetings, Trephena and Trephosa. Now some scholars have supposed that because they are named together, they must have been sisters, perhaps even twins, because of the similarity of their names. However, that's all speculation. I just want us to continue to note this heavy involvement of women in the movement and how they are given acclamation just as are the men. So very early in the believing movement, the equal worth of women to men was embedded into our faith. That doesn't mean, by the way, that cultural roles changed. It is only that women were not shoved to the background or given less value than males. In fact, we see that women were in leadership within the movement, even though it was usually leadership over other women. Another female named Persis is greeted as yet another hard worker for the Roman congregation. Next, Paul says hello to Rufus and to his mother, whom he says was as a mother to him too. Now this gives us insight into an unusually close relationship that Paul must have had with his family but we don't find it mentioned anywhere else in any of his letters. In verse 14 Paul continues his greetings to Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and others of God's people who are with him. Now this gives us a strong hint this is speaking of another and separate believing congregation. See, Rome was large, it was a diverse city. There was plenty of room, probably necessity, for a number of believing congregations. Well, after the greetings to individuals, Paul returns to offering instructions as he says the Roman believers are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, in, Middle e- in the Middle East and elsewhere, to this day, it's customary to be greeted with a kiss, usually on both cheeks. Now, this is not a romantic kiss. Rather, it's an indication of brotherhood. Sometimes it's actually just a show of respect. A holy kiss was a display of fellowship. and was known to have become traditional within the early Messianic community. Now perhaps there was a certain protocol kind of a way it occurred that made it recognizably different from the more ordinary and common kiss greeting of that era. It actually even became part of worship services in the early church. Now some Bible commentators have suggested that Paul is warning the believers in Rome to be sure to greet one another with a holy kind of kiss as opposed to a romantic kind of kiss due to the number of women who were part of the congregation. I think this can only be because these commentators aren't aware of the practice of the holy kiss as, standard, as a standard greeting among believers back then. That is, a holy kiss actually became a hallmark of believers. And Paul was urging the Romans to to adopt this practice. Then in verse 17, Paul continues with something that for some reason he waited until now to address. He says to watch out for false teachers who cause divisions among the believers. He goes so far as to say, keep away from them. Paul seeks for believers to shun other professed believers who seem to always be causing strife. If you've been a believer long enough, you've attended a congregation long enough, you've met such people. Paul stops short of saying that the troublemakers should be expelled. But he does explicitly instruct to have nothing to do with such members. For the most part, Paul equates this strife as being the result of their false teaching. He then goes on to explain that these teachers who cause strife with their false teaching are only in it for themselves. He says they're only there to feed their own bellies. No doubt an expression that means their actions are self-serving. Now I prefer to stay away from judging other Bibles and teachers and pastors because we're called not to judge. And yet we must take that instruction as a generality and not as an absolute since here we have Paul virtually telling the believers in Rome that they are to shun those among them, who teach falsities, and or teach only for self-profit. Thus the Biblical order to not judge cannot mean we are to turn our brains off, that we are to turn a blind eye to what is obviously insincere or wrong or maybe at times even criminal behavior. So here I'll take the opportunity to say to you how little regard I personally have, frankly, for a good number of television evangelists who certainly seem to be using the gospel primarily as a means to get rich. When the constant refrain from a pastor or a teacher is to send money... Or to plant a seed, or buy them a jet, so they can take the gospel to more places faster. Be skeptical. When every message begins and ends with talking about a book they wrote and a special price just for you, be skeptical. I'm not going to name names we all know who they are. This doesn't mean that they're not real believers, by the way. But just as with Paul's instruction that doesn't necessarily question a false teacher's salvation, but only his impure motives, so we should do the same. See, believers aren't perfect. We're just saved. just saved money and fame that can be irresistible temptations even for a believer sadly all through the ages all through the ages we have the names of Christians who have succumbed to the pressures and they've even wound up being great swindlers Jim Baker being one of the most infamous in our current modern era Paul is clear we are to have nothing to do with believers like this. Now let me say this another way because it's important that we hear and understand that such unethical and illegal activity among renowned Christians is nothing new. Paul is addressing this issue because he perceives a threat from within the body itself, not from outsiders. He doesn't label any of these false teachers as pretenders. Being on the inside and gaining a relationship and a familiarity with a congregation opens the doors wide for the unsuspecting to be fleeced and deceived. I'm aware of a situation whereby a bookkeeper for a medium-sized church stole well over a million dollars over a period of years. The irregularities in his accounting were noticed. But since the gentleman was well known, no one felt comfortable enough to confront him. So many years passed as the losses kept mounting up. Finally, when there was no more denying it and he confessed upon being confronted, the senior pastor did not want to turn him over to law enforcement for embezzlement because he felt that believers shouldn't judge other believers. Fortunately, lay leaders, with a little bit more balanced view, demanded justice and the person was arrested and eventually sentenced to prison while the money was never recovered at least the outflow stopped and the culprit was punished thus it is in the context of looking out for false teachers and for those who only want to serve themselves by using the Lord's name that Paul says believers are to be wise concerning good and innocent concerning evil We are to learn and understand what good is in God's eyes. In God's eyes. So that we can be wise enough to know the difference between good and evil. You know, sometimes the differences can be pretty subtle. Or more often than not, as society evolves, the notion of what is good. And what is evil evolves and inevitably it evolves away from God's definition. And while we ought not to become explorers or experts in the ways of evil with the notion that by doing so we can recognize and and avoid it we must also not look the other way And make excuses for evil when we see it in ourselves or in our own brothers and sisters in the Lord. And again, in the context in which Paul has been speaking, we must especially be on guard against folks who would cause strife and division within the body. What to do when that happens? Paul says to stay away from them. Give them no influence. Give them no forum to spread their dissension. The good news, says Paul, is that the congregation of Rome is known for being obedient, and for this he rejoices. Thus, to this point, even though he has obviously heard about the presence of those who are causing strife and promoting false teaching within the the Roman congregation, on balance, Paul says, it's remained faithful. Now, verse 20. Verse 20 is in some ways kind of odd. In fact, many Bible commentators are pretty certain that it just doesn't belong here and is out of place, that it's not of Paul. However, as I've mentioned, there is this thread within Christianity that for various doctrinal reasons, they do not want Romans chapter 15 and 16 to be seen as authentic or legitimate. C.E.B. Cranfield is not one of these. And he says this about this verse. About verse 20. It is Paul's Autograph authentication of his letter. It was customary for the sender of a letter, when the laborious task of actually writing the text had been fulfilled by somebody else, to add a concluding greeting in his own hand. This served to authenticate the letter as a signature does today. There's really no need to debate it further. Chapters 15 and 16 are legitimate And their content should be trusted. Even though certain things said in them, well, they shoot holes in the doctrines that some denominations insist upon. Therefore, what occurs from verse 21 on is sort of a postscript. In other words, it's a P.S. Therefore, after Paul has finished saying everything of substance that he wants to impart to the believers in Rome, He now wants to add that four fellows who are with him, I think in Corinth, want to get in on the act and they want to say hello to their fellow believers in Rome. Now Timothy, we know of as Paul's most trusted companion and helper. Lucius, we don't know anything about. Although there is a Lucius mentioned in Acts chapter 13, perhaps this is the same person. Jason might well be the same Jason mentioned in Acts 17. He was a well-regarded believer who resided in Thessalonica and was described as a very close acquaintance of Paul's. Sosipater is, is spoken of in Acts 20, but it is not possible to determine if this is the same, same fellow. Now Tertius, to whom Paul has been dictating, now adds his own personal greeting. Paul customarily used a scribe to write his letters for him and it was equally customary that a scribe would add his own personal greeting at the end of a letter if it seemed appropriate. Verse 23 now, it returns to Paul and here he gives recognition to his host, Gaius in whose home not only has Paul been, been residing but it was where the local congregation was meeting. And he offers he offers then Gaius's greetings and well. Now very probably this is the same Gaius that Paul baptized because Gaius lived in Corinth. Erastus, he's the city treasurer of Corinth. in fact, in a, in a, a wonderful archaeological artifact discovered in the plaza of the theater in Corinth that dates to the same time as Paul's letter, we find an inscription on a plaque that was unearthed. And the plaque says, Erastus, in return for his idolship, laid the pavement at his own expense. Now, the word idolship refers to what a business manager does. So clearly, this Erastus was responsible for the public infrastructure of Corinth. Quartus is just unknown to us. Now there is, interestingly, a verse 24 in some Greek manuscripts that most English Bibles omit because it is so certain that it was added by someone long after the letter was completed. It doesn't harm anything, but I know of no one who believes it to be original And the words are, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now in what can only be described as a doxology, in other words, a short hymn of praise to end a service, Paul more or less sums up now all that he has taught in his letter. He of course gives all glory to God, for Paul now, remember, this means the Father. For him God is the Father. He speaks of the secret truth, the mystery, the musterion in Greek, that the Lord has revealed through His Son, Yeshua, the truth of the good news. It is a truth that has been hidden in plain sight for ages and ages. It's a truth that was embedded and foretold in the prophetic writings. It is the command of the eternal God. And Paul certifies that it has been communicated to the Gentiles in order to promote within them a faith in the God of Israel that is based upon trust. Only God is wise, says Paul. God's wisdom comes to us through Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God. I want to close today with this thought. In 1 Corinthians 1, 22-25, Paul said this Precisely because Jews ask for signs and Greeks, meaning Gentiles, try to find wisdom, we go on proclaiming a Messiah executed on a stake as a criminal. To Jews, this is an obstacle. To the Greeks, it's nonsense. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, this same Messiah is God's power and God's wisdom. For God's nonsense is wiser than humanity's wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than humanity's strength. This completes our study of the book of Romans.